host, <laughs> senior yeah. host. Go ahead, man. So welcome everybody. My name is Jeffrey Lyons, and with me as well, Jim Chester. Hey, and, buddy. And uh, we're here. We got a little podcast going here, Distilled Legacy. We welcome you to it. We appreciate Kent Lawrence also for and the co-create folks for allowing us to use their facility. Uh, really appreciate this. And this is the third episode, and also the one where we will be going live and posting our other episodes on here too. And uh, we got some fun stuff for you today. So, Jim, what do you think about talking about thankfulness for today? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we've got Thanksgiving coming up in what tomorrow, and uh, you know, I, I, hopefully that's everybody's great. thankful all the time. Um, and that's probably the most important thing to uh, keep in mind is that thankfulness is not something that you should do just you know when when it's a holiday. Um, but uh, you know, it, it is this time of year when I think everyone, because of the holiday, people are sort of forced to maybe reflect on things that that uh, we are thankful for. And, you know, I know that we, we in, a, in America and in Texas specifically have a lot to be thankful for. Um, but I mean, really in everybody's lives, we spend so much time wanting more and, and thinking about what we don't have or what the next guy has or everything. And, and I have this, 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 you know, this truism that I've, I've realized about life. And that is, it is virtually impossible to be unhappy and grateful at the same time. And so I practice thankfulness regularly. It's part of my weekly, my daily, uh, you know, sort of mantra. I think the thing that I do is that first of all, um, I, I'm thankful just to be alive. You know, and it's just simple things like that. You know, you don't think about it. And I guess uh, it, a good example, uh, what I mean by this is that the things we take for granted, when they're even taken away from you for just a little while, you realize how important they are. And um, I remember. One day I was, well, I'll just gonna say this, I had a kidney stone and it's not the first one I've ever had because it, I know the drill, I know what's gonna happen. It, it hurts for a while and then, you know, generally it passes and it goes away. But for the first, I don't know, hour, it is utter pain, childbirth level pain. My wife will dis <laughs> disagree with me, but it's really painful. And you're just, I mean, so bad that you're curled up in the bathroom floor pain, you know, because I, not everybody does this, but I have one of these things where I'll curl up. I get so, so much pain, I'll just throw up. And even though I don't feel like, you know, nauseous, I just do uh, super, super bad pain. So, but, but then it passes. And it, when I, when I say pain, let's say it goes, you know, they have the levels of pain, zero to 10 and 10 is like the worst. You're like an eight, like you just, and then it goes not to a zero, but to a, a four. And you're so thankful that it's not an eight. And you're like, wow, I didn't realize how much nicer life was at a four than, than the eight. And you really appreciate it. And then when it finally goes away and it passes and you're back to a zero, you realize, you know, every day of my life, I'm pretty much at a zero or a one. And I don't even think about it. I, I'm not I'm not grateful for it. But when something's taken away from you, you realize that there's a there's a saying that that health is a crown that only the sick people can want can see people wearing. Because they see the healthy people wearing the crown of health. And all, you know, sick people, hurt people, people that are that that are, are struggling, they see this crown on everybody else, and everybody else is just walking around thinking that they're they don't have enough, they don't have this, you know that. So, kind of a roundabout way of saying that we have plenty to be thankful for every single day. And I think that if you want, if you want to be happy, uh, step one, start thinking about what you're grateful for. And if you can, you know, when you when you're feeling negative, feeling like you you know you, you're disappointed you didn't get something or or maybe you're feeling a little jealous or envious of somebody, uh, just stop, recognize what you're doing, and then kind of go through, all right, and I tell my kids to do this, like, 
name 10 things that you have that you're really thankful for. Before you even get to number 10, you don't feel envious anymore. You don't feel negative anymore. I mean, you still, let's say you missed out on a job or, or you didn't get admitted to this college you wanted to go to or whatever. Um, yeah, you're still going to be disappointed, but you're going to have it in perspective. So yes, I didn't get that. Right, but I've got too. all this great stuff going on. So I, that's that's where I am. You know, I, I think I love Thanksgiving. It's probably my favorite holiday. Um, it's basically Christmas without all the extra stuff. So it's a little <laughs> more condensed. You don't get beat down by it. By the time Christmas gets here, although I love Christmas, yeah, it's like a whole month and a half of Christmas stuff, right? And by the time it gets here, you're kind of over it. <laughs> so so I put my Christmas decorations up the day after Thanksgiving, but I take them down the day after Christmas. <laughs> I do. I'm just done with it. I'm done with it. The uh, so what the what what are you most what are you most thankful for though right now? If you were to put you on the spot for fun right now, what what are you most thankful for? Um, it's, it's probably, I mean, anything beyond myself, obviously simple things like life and health and, and opportunity and stuff, but it, you know, the most tangible thing is my family, um, outside of myself, you know, the, 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 my, my wife, my children, my, my extended family, the things that my parents gave me giving up growing up. And and I don't mean stuff. We were, honestly, I had no idea how poor we were growing up. We were pretty darn poor. We didn't, didn't feel like it. Um, but you know, in the demographic thing, we were, we were probably poor, but in a small town, it doesn't really matter that much. I never went hungry. Um, you could, you could tell by looking at me, I was a football player, <laughs> everyone hungry, still had what we needed, not everything we wanted, but who does. Um, but I, I look at my family now and, and think it's not just, you know, the, the fact that I love my wife, my, my children, um, and what they're going to become and, and the, the, the chance they got that I get to be their father, but also looking back at my own family that helped me develop and, and made me into the man I am now that gave me the opportunities I have now. And beyond that, beyond the sappy stuff, I would say the number one thing that I'm thankful for in is being an American. I mean, being it's opportunity, um, opportunity that's created by capitalism, that's created by the free market, that's created by technology, that's created by freedom. And, and all those other things, technology, uh, you know, capital, all that starts with freedom. If we don't have that ability to move forward, I would still be that poor kid from a small town. But I knew I had a chance to do more. So I applied myself. If I hadn't had that opportunity and, and known that that was out there, that, hey, if you get an education and you do the work, you've got a chance. No guarantees. That's it. I never thought it was a guarantee. I never I still don't think it's a guarantee. I mean, things could change the worst tomorrow you know that the, the market could tank things could go bad but i still think that as long as there's opportunity as long as we have freedom we all we all as long as we have opportunity there's hope and we can we can do more i mean isn't that really the best gift you could give anybody is opportunity and hope absolutely i mean that's that's so many so many of the different folks that we have involved with like rotary the chamber like the different ambassador programs also with young professionals um American Legion, even with the veterans and everything else, I'd be like, if I was what I was most thankful for, I would absolutely say the same thing. I would say freedom as well, but also family, children, wife, everybody taking care of me as well as the community. Um, but really, too, one of the things I'm really excited about that we mentioned yesterday uh, was that having a different approach and ability to reach out to anybody that you could pretty much imagine damn near around here. And go up to them and get professional mentorship. Like for instance, I could go to like Larry Parks over there, American National Bank of Texas, like, and I can have his ear, and he'll give me direction about whatever it might be, investment strategy, different things. Uh, to the same thing as running a business, managing people. I'm, I mean, I could talk with yourself. You run a different IP law firm and everything else with uh, Al Suites and such. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much opportunity. Um, and of course, I mean, this is the millennial coming out, which is fun. I mean, 
I'm grateful for the internet. I'm grateful for being able to <laughs> have the internet signal, you know what I'm saying? And being able to listen to, you know, whatever I want to the podcast or an audible or an audio book or YouTube or my friends is on the way over here. I was in a mix of listening to some side Gangnam style on the way over here. Right. <laughs> and then I turned over to some metal and then completely transitioned to uh, <laughs> listen to that book. I was talking about through Simon Sinek, the infant games, the new one he just came out with. Uh, so I mean, mine's kind of like the personality, I guess, in a sense, and, but also mood, but I'm thankful for, you know, being able to have that. And I'm thankful for being able to be here in Rockwell County, the greatest place on earth here in Texas. Um, well, you know, uh, speaking of that, I, you know, and and you talk about the veterans, and I know you are a veteran, and you know, have great respect for our, our active servicemen and women as well as veterans, and you know that that makes me think of uh, the, I love this movie. It's getting a little dated now. It's not as, as overwhelming as it used to be, but it's when I first saw Saving Private Ryan, the first twenty minutes of work, you know, kind of, I really at that moment felt like I was in that. I was in that battle, and I really understood because my grandfather. Um, I don't. I know he was at Normandy. I don't know that he was storming the beaches there, but he he was there. Uh, he may have been like the fiftieth gay that came in later, but he was there. He's no longer with us. Um, but I did get to know he didn't die in, in Normandy. But um, you know, it made me think of that movie. Uh, the whole concept of that movie was you know the guys going to to bring back the one guy. It, it seemed a little a little bit of a not good use of, of resources to send all those guys after one guy. But the point to me of the movie was not. It was about about what gratitude is, um, because at the uh, at the end of the movie, when you know the Tom Hanks character was basically about to die at that last battle, and they they've got Ryan, they were holding that bridge, and, and the, the, right before the, the the Mustangs or whatever kind of flew overhead to give them some air support and you know show that they were going to survive. Right as he dies, he grabs Private Ryan and he says, "Earn this." He because it basically just summed up everything they had done to get them to that point. You know, that we did this for you. We did this for your family. We did this for, you know, all this. But I think that uh, when, I, when I'm in mind of thankfulness, I think of the people, whether it's my family or veterans or the founding fathers or whatever, everything that led up to give us the opportunity we have now, um, that that same message is kind of, if they could come back from the grave, they could speak to us for five seconds. They say, earn what we did, earn this. And I guess the next question is, how do, how do you earn it? How do you you, you just sit around and you light candles for them and you say, thank you. <laughs> no, I think you earn it through your actions. You know, the best Absolutely. way to show, I tell my kids, hey, look, you want to show me gratitude for giving you, you know, a good family and good schools and nice clothes? Perform. Use those tools I've given you. Use that opportunity that I've given you and reward me by kicking ass. You know, go do whatever it is you want to do. I'm not saying do what I want you to do, but use those tools. Use that opportunity. That's how you show gratitude. You use it. If I give you opportunity, take advantage of it. Don't roll around and say, I don't, woe is me. I'm a victim. I don't have this. I don't have that. That's great. You've got more than 99% of all humanity that's ever been on this planet. Even if you are an oppressed minority, even if you're an oppressed this or that, even if you're blind, even if you're the, anything that whatever you have going against you, Chances are, if you stack it up against the entire history of humanity, humankind throughout the world, throughout the, the uh, human history, you have tremendous advantages. So you can choose to focus on that. And of course, everybody, there's all these stories, Helen Keller and all these other great stories of people who truly had disadvantages, truly had things that they, that they, they could say, this is my excuse, right? And to me, the, what makes them heroic is the fact that they decided, you know what? I don't have it as good as some people, but I have opportunity. I want, I want to do more. And so when I think of 
not only being thankful, it's not a feeling, you know, yes, it is. And it's a, and it, you know, and, and this is where I you know, mentioned, you know, if you want to be happy, be grateful. Um, that's true. That's the, that's the emotional part. That's the mental focus part of gratitude. It does get you out of that self-pity and that, you know, that looking at disadvantage and thinking about the things I'm really happy about. But if you, you want to do the next step, you want to show gratitude, first and foremost, use it. Use what you've got. Use the talent you've been given. Use the opportunity you've been given to the maximum ability. You have an obligation to use your talents. You know, there's a, you know, the Bible story of the, the, the parable of Jesus. You know, he's the, 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 the master has three servants and he gives them talents, which was actually units of money. It's just coincidentally named talents. Um, and one of them, you know, goes out and, and, and buries it. One of them blows it. One of them invests it. And basically the, the short story is the only one that really got griped at was the one who just buried their talent and didn't do anything with it. Even the one who went out and invested it and lost it took mm -hmm. a chance. And so when I think about being grateful or how I reward my parents, my grandfather, the, the veterans that came before, everybody that gave me the, the, the shoulders to stand on that I have today, including things like the technology that we have and the opportunity. It's I have an obligation to them to show my gratitude by doing everything I can with those things I've got. And then I also have obviously an obligation to my family and the future generation to give them more opportunity by using my skills and my talents now. So that's that's really when I think about gratitude, it comes down to, yes, it's a feeling. Yes, it's a perspective. But to me, it's also a call to action. It's like show your gratitude by doing these things that not only not only are for yourself, but realizing that you can contribute to others. Obviously, another way to show gratitude is is charity and helping others. And, and for me, I, obviously, I do charity and service and everything, but but I also mentoring. And help you know with a hand up to people uh, that, that are looking to to show their own gratitude by by finding opportunities and they just need a little guidance. So you know, you my whole life I'm going to need mentors, and as I get more established in my career and things, I'm I have the the opportunity to be a mentor more and more. And so I I want to be a mentor, but I also know that I, I haven't got it all figured out because I know how to be a you know 45 year old man with kids, but now I'm 48. I don't know how to be a 48-year-old man, so I need somebody you know, to help me. Or I don't know how to be a 50-year-old man. I've got to have people in my life that can give me um, guidance, pointers, the benefit of their experience, uh, but also kind of going back to what I said about you can't be sad um, and and grateful at the same time. I mean, you can. you got to really try, though. It takes a lot of effort. <laughs> but I will say that another truth that i found is if you ever feel like you're not worth anything, if you, you don't matter, real simple solution help somebody volunteer open the door for somebody help a lady with the grocery whatever you find look for an opportunity to help somebody and i bet you're gonna realize wow i feel a little better and that's feeling that you're feeling when you do that is worth its value because every human being's value has, that I think is, that to themselves is, is what they mean to the world. My value in my family is I mean a lot. My value in my community is that I think I can contribute to my community. 
if I didn't contribute to my community, if I didn't, if I didn't live only for myself, I think my value would be limited, no matter what my bank account said, yeah. what my title was, mm -hmm. my value is as a human being is directly related to how much other world people need me and how much other people need me is directly related to how much I give them. I give them of myself of my talents and things. Also, I mean, also too, that you can inspire them, you know what I'm saying? And it's get them motivated and get them hyped up and excited about something. As well as you know, the people you work with and everything else in this community, I mean, you're running three different businesses and you're also helping. I mean, you still serve in the city here, don't you? Uh, so, yes, on the parks board, we've got a path of the parks and trails of teeth that we're, we're raising money uh, through private donations. I love this. The city's not taxing people, this is people <laughs> that, that put your money where your mouth is. Um, we're not adding new taxes or are we or shifting money away from streets or anything to help develop these parts and trails. But, but people really feel strongly in our community about nice trails and, and public program is, is a program the park path that because <laughs> help develop the trails, develop, develop the park, you know, planting a tree. If you're going to be there, places to gather as a community. Um, and our trails are our parks and trails. Our trails can connect the neighborhoods, it can connect the parks. And gives people a chance to get out and get among each other because right now we, you know we have a lot of little enclaves and you know we have this town and I, I used to live in Dallas and we had you know Dallas is this big city but it's really not it's a, an amalgamation of all these little neighborhoods that is governed by this super governmental organization that you know handles it but as far as we all live locally we all lived I lived in Lakewood you know people live in Lake Highlands people live in Highland Park Park City um, they have their own little neighborhoods that they and then they're even sub neighborhoods of those neighborhoods you know. <laughs> Uh, so there's Park City, there's Highland Park, there's Old Highland Park, there's, yep. you know, there's, there's University Park and all that. So it, even in Lakewood, there's Old Lakewood, there's there's Northern Lakewood, which is this, you know, there's Lakewood vicinity. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, there's not quite in the Lakewood Elementary District. But so all the, but, but I realized when I was there that, that when I was in Lakewood, I lived in Lakewood. Dallas was the address on my mailbox, mm -hmm. but I lived in Lakewood and my community was Lakewood. And I, and I didn't really feel connected with the greater Dallas area. And, and as cities grow, as Rockwell grows, as Heath grows, you know, as, as, and, and we're in a we're a small town that's in a in a growth spurt, and so is, is Rockwell. It's in a growth spurt, but this happens all over the country. It's, it's neighborhoods or or towns are growing. You worry, you lose that sort of all of us in this town mentality, and now we're at these enclaves, these neighborhoods or these areas. And one way to fight that is through trails and parks that connect them, and people you know kind of go see yeah, these things, yeah, outdoor activities and such. Absolutely, different things. I mean, this this is going to get into a fun hot button. I think that'll be, you know, it'll resonate with everybody that would end up listening, I, I would say. One thing that we don't do anymore, and goes on to even part of that, with you growing up in the area, and it's like, you know, you didn't even feel connected in a sense, right? But it's here in our neighborhoods. I mean, like, we both live in nice places. It, that being said, you know, how well, I mean, I know you know your neighbors well. You you help bring fiber there, probably there. <laughs> get everybody, everybody belts. You have to get to know people yeah. and get them up for money. But, yeah, it helps. But I mean, the one thing, like, I'd really stress to everybody too, in a sense of being thankful, you know, in a sense too, like, you need to be thankful of your neighbors also, you know, thankful of your community. If you're prideful of your own home, prideful of your own, you know, community and the street you live on and the house next door to you or the person behind you or the person in front of you, it just promotes wellness and positivity, but also in the sense of higher, you know, excellence in a sense, because you know the person to your left, you know the person to your right. If you need to, you know, back in the day, I think when I was little, we used to be able to go to a house, a couple, a couple houses down or such, like if we needed a thing of sugar or something, mm -hmm. for instance, because, you know, 
Walmart like was about like <laughs> twenty minutes away, thirty yeah. minutes away to go get something. You need two like, eggs. Yeah, you need like two eggs or yeah. one scoop. What what scoop is sugar? Mom be like, oh hey hey, get, go, go down there and see Brenda. Go see go get a go get some go get some sugar. Bring it on back. Mm -hmm. See if you don't mind. You tell her we'll go get her and hold another bag or something. And um, it, it just it dawned on me too, especially as I was coming in this morning. I was like, man. Saw these newer folks moving in at the end of the street, and I was like, you know, I was like, I need to go welcome them. So Kaylee's already said too, she's gonna end up making some uh, like delicious muffin, like these pumpkin and chocolate chip. Ooh, they're to death for it's, it's like a <laughs> it's like a thousand calorie meal. Nice, right? so, nice. <laughs> America. Yeah, uh, but you know, I'm gonna go over there and make sure that I welcome them, but also you know, let them know who I am, but also give them contact information and encourage them to meet the other folks yeah. in the other nearby houses. Because at the same time, I would feel safer. Knowing that if my kids ever go outside and play, which they do commonly, I mean, usually one of the one of us is there with them. But gone are the days in, in a way that you know we grew up probably playing football across like four or five people's houses, front oh, yeah. yards, you know. Yeah. And it's like you know, your parents didn't know when they're coming back. You just knew that by God, you better be back well, by the time when, those, when those lights, lights came those on. Lights, you better yeah. be back at home. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You kind of it used to be that's just what happened, right? Yeah, in the suburbs, in the cities. Uh, maybe it was because we didn't have the technology on you know, video games and things and TV. We had like four channels and, um, you know, and sometimes they didn't come in real well. So you know, we got cable and stuff. But I think that was that's a bygone era. That's definitely gone. So but but we, we got the benefit of it. You know what? My we, we didn't have cell phones and GPS trackers and stuff. My parents knew where I was, or at least they knew I was in one of three places and they could call. Miss Rutherford's house. They call yeah. Miss yeah. Parnell's house and find out if I was over there. Are you, is, is Jim over there? Is Jimmy over there? And uh, they would know where it was, or they'd know I'd be back in time because they, everybody's kind of keeping on everybody's kids. But nowadays, you know, you have to cultivate that. Like you said, you know, you had to go out of your way to meet the neighbors because it didn't happen naturally anymore. You you have to, you know, and like that once a year neighborhood block party where those are good. Those are better. At least you meet the neighbors, and that's step one. But getting to find ways to be engaged with the neighbors regularly, and we do, we can use technology to do that. I mean, I started one of the things I did with my my neighborhood's only got fifty something houses, but they're spread out. Everybody has an acre or so, so it's kind of a you know you don't you may know the guys across the street or whatever, or if you have kids the same age, you may know them because they get to play each other, play with each other. But I know there are several neighbors I've talked to maybe once or, or hardly ever know, but I and I know everybody. You know, there's the president of the HOA. I've gone out of my way. I walk through the neighborhood regularly just with my dog and I meet people and I kind of keep an idea on what's going on. It's a safety thing, but it's also to me it's about part of the community. What knowing who's there and having that some relationship with those neighbors. It, it is something that that is it's it's missing from a lot of communities because people are people are very insular. You know, we have so much that we don't need. And, you know, this this goes to a community thing, but it's also a very personal thing. Um, I realized that I have a lot of friends like lowercase f friends, you know, people that I that I like, that lowercase. like me, that we get together <laughs> with. And, you know, when you see a movie about these BFFs or these friends from childhood or there are these really good friends and maybe it's a guy thing or whatever, I just. I realized that I don't have a lot of those. And you know, these people that say, well, you know, who would you call if you really need somebody in the middle of the night or whatever? I'm like, I don't need anybody in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you know, so that's that's the reason I realized that one of the reasons is that I don't allow myself to need somebody. I mean, you don't need people, you you miss that bond. You know, it's the it's the it's the negative things, it's the the tough times, the tears that bonds are born out of. It, good times are great, but you don't really you don't have to fight for those. I mean, if boot camp was all a party, you wouldn't bond, right? But the fact that you guys could go through crap together and you suffer together, it builds a bond. Uh, you know, fraternity pledge ship, 
It's not anything like boot camp, trust me, but I, I know that. But at the same time, it is for, for spoiled 18-year-old boys going to college, it's tough. You know, you're getting yelled at. You're not used to getting yelled at. You know, it's already tough enough to be away from your family and all that stuff. And now, you know, the hazing and stuff that's going on. And, and I'm not talking about bad, bad hazing. I'm just talking normal, you know, the normal stuff that's well within the, the range of it shouldn't be thrown out by the SJW. Um, but but because of the extremists and because of, of the the mentality of the world, they're getting rid of Pletcher. Pletcher basically is a week-long class, which is like orientation to a fraternity, and they're joining a club now. It, it's different. The bonds I have with my Pledge brothers, with my fraternity brothers, while not the same as, as you know, maybe the generation before, not the same as Band of Brothers or anything like that, it's more than what the guys now will probably have. They're gonna have, they're gonna have lowercase f friends. And at that time, in that moment, when I was in college, and even to now, to this day, a few of these guys I can still call on if I needed them. Now, but I had to ask myself, you know, who are these people that I could, you know, if I was in real trouble, who could I call on for help? I think a lot of people. I really could. I just don't know because I've never, never had to call on them. And because I've been blessed, and because I, I you know, we're we're we have all this, we we want for nothing. We we don't need each other as much. And, and the, a good example of this is when I moved from Dallas DISD schools to uh, where th they just need money constantly. There's constantly fundraisers. And my wife was very involved in the, in the PTA at our elementary school. And this is an affluent area of Dallas. But we had to raise a lot of money every year to make up the shortfall from the DISD because they just didn't have enough money to go around to all the schools because they had to push money out. And DISD actually had to pay money through Robin Hood to other districts because it was a wealthy district. You had to go to some of the more rural districts. So DISD, you know, within DISD, we got double Robin Hooded at Lakewood. So we had to raise a lot of money there. But when I crazy coming from my wife grew up in private schools where there's constantly a need for money going to DISD constantly need for money raising money um, well so we move out here and I, I go to the school we were we raised with the moms they were raising I had you know the dads picked up the slack Side of the school, so two of us. I had Mondays. I had another guy on Mondays, and we did every week, every Monday morning. You know, we would do it for years. And so I get to the schools out there, and I'm like, we don't need, we don't need that. We have one fundraiser a year, and it was cool in a way because oh, it's great. You know, we don't need, we're not needed. But it took me so much longer to meet some of the parents to, to because they don't need you involved. And so I realized that what, what I missed out of our Lakewood community, part of it, all those friends I'd made and all those relationships I had was because we all came together to help out the community, help out the school. Well, the more affluent you are, the less you have to come together, you outsource everything. You know, how many times, when I, when I was a kid, we put out our Christmas decoration. We hung our Christmas lights. Yep. Yep. We cleaned up our leaves. 
we mowed our yards and that's how you got to know people. And, and, and when I, when I started, you know, I was like, like 14, 15 years old and I want to make some money. I would mow my neighbor's yard for 20 bucks, 10 yep. bucks, whatever. And that's how I made money. So I, but it wasn't, we didn't have professional lawn crews. We didn't have professional Christmas lighting. And I'm not begrudging anybody from having that because we have, we don't do professional Christmas lights, but a lot of folks do. And I, and I think they're beautiful. Um, but uh, we do some other lighting stuff, but I mean, it's just as, as affluence rises, as, as your needs go down, I do think that there is this tendency to, because you've outsourced everything to professionals, you don't need anybody. We're, we're becoming more isolated. I mean, do you sense that as well? Do you see that? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, de I definitely do. But it, again, it's part of what you're saying earlier with the regards like the technology, like technology. I love technology. Obviously I work at an IT firm, <laughs> but uh, it can also be a double-edged sword, especially if it's not fostered correctly, might be the right term. Some of the, other things too that I would say is with regards of personalities is a little bit of it, but a lot of pride and ego and everything too. Uh, and plus there's just people that plain don't have social experience. They don't have social aptitude. Oh, there's entire generations coming up that they will not have any social oh, yeah. aptitude. It's getting worse, oh, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, heck yeah. I mean like for instance, like my one my younger brother, I've got my oldest of four, got a little sister about a year and a half younger than me, and then a Younger brother, same parents, everything. Ten years age difference. Then another one, twenty years age difference. <laughs> well, you're just like Oops. a study of generational differences, yeah, right there. Like, let's do a science experiment. <laughs> uh, but my younger brother, I mean, he he graduated from Allen over in Allen High after going through Bishop Lynch or not Bishop Lynch, but St. Pius. The sister went to Bishop Lynch. Mm -hmm. So he went to St. Pius for a little while for private school, and then now he's, like I said, graduated from Allen. He's about two years. He's finished now there at the, the local community college. He's doing work and now he's going to Texas Tech. But the whole thing I've been pushing on this, you know, you know, I love that you're pursuing the degree and everything, but what's the purpose? What are you going for? What are you going after? He wants to be a video game designer, video game developer. Awesome. Cool. Right? Got yeah. it. Well, you know, also very volatile, uh, potentially, if also if not done correctly. But I'm mm -hmm. trying to push him. I'm like, man, it's like you need to reach out to some of these developers and these studios here. I was like, Dallas is becoming an increasing, you know, hub for this talent and tons, tons of studios. From the video games you got on your phone, from Word Chums, Wordscapes, and such that a lot of people play on their phone, Word mm -hmm. Stacks. I was on Ellen DeGeneres earlier this year. Mm -hmm. The folks are here in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And also, you have um, you know, it software that made Doom, that they are the creator of the first person shooter in, in death matches. Yeah. Um, you know, we have that there. But also, it's just the thing that dawned on me when I was explaining to them, like trying to give them some mentorship and guidance, like I do with some other students. Um, when it comes to their interviews or their resumes and everything else mm -hmm. and the passion, it's like trying to push them into it. It's like, hey, what have you done so far? Well, I applied to so and so. I, I applied to this. I mean, I just haven't heard anything back. Dude, are you kidding me? Like, come on, man. No, get unconventional. Get your real like you yeah. want it, you need to show it. Yeah. I'm like, you need by this point, I was like, can I give him start getting subtasks if he's like one of my soldiers? <laughs> like, hey, you hey, by next week, I was like, I want you to know exactly who's in that department that you can identify from public through LinkedIn, et cetera, see who they are, who's running in the shops, like what you want to do. Look at their backgrounds. Look at what community volunteer organizations they're a part of. Look at what their specialty is. Look at their description. Follow them on social media. See what the personality is like. I was like, because you need everything in your ring, especially to get into it. Then I, I kind of personify the game world, the game studios, much like that of almost in a way going into the government sector, like if you as a GS employee, it's like if you want to work for NASA, you want to work from some of these other companies, it's really difficult to get in, regardless of how talented you are. Mm -hmm. 
it's really difficult to get in the system through all the bureaucracies and the weeks and months of security clearance investigations, all of that. Uh, but once you're in, you're in. And it's easy. You can transfer <laughs> anywhere you want as long as it's a government position internally. Very easy. But it, what, it's get that foot in the door. Get the foot in the door. Well, you know, that's exactly. that's a very common thing in law, too. You know, uh, I, I, because of my teaching at Baylor Law School the last 18 years and just being in the law profession, um, and that I mentored a lot of people, a lot of young lawyers or wannabe lawyers that are they're, you know, in law school or, and they're one of the things they often want. And the hardest job in law, the hardest job for anybody out of college or whatever is your first job in your chosen field. First job is easy. First job, there's always a minimum wage job somewhere, you know, <laughs> but your first job in your chosen field is the hardest one to get. And for the, for the burgeoning lawyer, it's really challenging because, you know, if you, if you go through the right program as a game developer, you know, and you probably got some a portfolio. If you're an, you're a graphic artist, you go through an art institute, you've got a portfolio Absolutely. to show your employee can do this. As a lawyer, when you come out of law school, not nothing, no knock on law schools. It's just they've come a long way in being more clinical and trying to get more practice. But the fact is, very little of law school translates into the practice of law. I mean, and just because law school is kind of a general degree of law, and law is a very specialized profession. You know, it's become that way. Very few, you know, you can become a criminal defense attorney, you become an appellate lawyer, you become a civil litigator, or a transaction or a technology lawyer, IP lawyer, uh, like myself and my firm, and that that that's or employment or everything. So there's substantive stuff, but then there's the practical areas. Okay, are you an employment transactional lawyer? What do you do? Uh, employment agreements, do you compliance policies and that kind of thing, or are you an employment litigator, you know, and that's litigation, learning all the routes there. And so you can do a little bit through practice court, through moot court mock trial, and maybe internships and, and clerkships. But when you get into the real world, it's a reset button. And so you do everything you can to pad your resume as much as you can so that you look good so you can get that very first job. But a lot of people think that you, you know, your first job has to be at the right firm in the right area. No, no, your first job, Two years. Can you get, all right, think about the job you ultimately want. Do you want to be a partner at a big firm? Okay. Find some partners in big firms. Look at their resume. Look at their background. Yep. Work backwards from what they got. And don't think of it from the standpoint of well, I have to follow their exact path, but I they were probably there to get 50 skills, 50 things, notches on their belt to get to that role. Okay. I need to figure out what those 50 notches are. And then can my first job get me a few notches? Can it get me? And the most important thing is law job. That's notch one, right? A job <laughs> as a lawyer. I don't care what it is. If it's a contract lawyer or whatever, get a job as a lawyer. So, so part one is work backwards from that that uh, where you really want to go. First of all, you're, you're, that's going to change as you get into your career. But your first job as a, an attorney or whatever needs to be something you can handle. If you can do it for two years and get some of those notches, some of those skills to get you to the next place, because you're going to be, it's going to evolve, right? Mm -hmm. So, but the biggest job, the hardest job, is that very first one. And so, what I say is. I understand that they have a recruiting partner or they have a, an administrator that handles this. But what I always tell my, my students when you're looking to get a job, find if there's a firm you really want to work for in an area you want to work for, look up because that's what's great about law. Lawyers are easy to find. We got websites, <laughs> we've got LinkedIn, we got all these things. Find a lawyer at that firm, preferably a partner. You know, the higher the better, right? But you know, with more clout. But find a lawyer that went to your college, that was in your fraternity, that went to your law school, that some that goes to your church, somebody that has something that you have in common with them, and then you target that person and you say, Look, hey, I want 10 minutes of your time. I need to find I'm looking, I'm a young student, I have this in common with you. Can I do a phone call? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? 15, 20 minutes of your time. I'm not asking for a job. 
So you have to say that because they don't want the pressure, right? Yeah. So I'm not looking for a job. Now you can always, if they have a job, you can say, hey, would you mind passing my resume along to whoever in your firm does that? And the magic of that, the magic of that is you didn't send that resume to the hiring partner directly. You send it to their partner. Their partner is now bringing you that resume. So guess where it goes? It goes on top of the stack. That's right. And even if all they did was hand it, that's the best thing they ever do for you is forward your resume to the hiring partner. That is a, that's a vouching for, hey, look, I don't really know him. Maybe I'll talk to him once, seem like a good kid, maybe a sharp person, but you decide. It's just initiative. But, and exactly. So just like what you're talking about, you you do your research. It's, a, it's Sometimes it's a little harder, but with law firms, it's real easy because every lawyer, if you have a hard time finding that lawyer, that's a, that's a firm you want to avoid because they're not marketing well. That lawyer, it's I'm marketing my image, my reputation. I need to be out there. It, you know, if ever I want to retire from practice of law and I kind of want to go off the grid, it's a, it's a multi-year process of getting rid of me because it's just out there, right? It's all, all these different things that I've been doing to develop my brand, my personal brand, even within my firm. So these, uh, but, but what I said, just like you were saying, you know, do your homework, do your research and don't necessarily follow the most obvious path because guess what? That's a crowded path. If you really want to stand out, you're going to have to think outside the box. And that's great for a game developer or somebody who needs to think creatively. But also, hey, you know what's great about being a game developer is you need a laptop. You don't need a job. Develop a game. Develop a wireframe for a game. Bring that as part of your pitch. And that's, a, that's a step two is in that two years, I tell these students, say, look, in your first two years, I don't care if it's the crappiest job in the world. What I want you to do is open up a Word document or Excel, whatever, whatever you want to do. A Word document is what I used to use. And the day you start that job, you the first thing you do is, oh, I uh, researched some stuff on this. Write it down. And then the next time you do something new, hey, I prepared a petition for this. And so do that for your two years. And so after two years, you know I'm looking for job number two, right? And so when you walk into that, re that, that job interview or maybe maybe you send it as part of your application, you send them an edited version of that document that doesn't say I've been working for two years at this small firm. It's five pages long of this is what I've done for two years. Because here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna go into that interview. If you don't have that document, you're gonna remember three or four really big things you've done, maybe something you did in the last two weeks and you'll, that's what you'll be able to talk about. But if you show somebody three years worth of stuff, you've probably forgotten about some things you've done. That shows, this is what I've accomplished in two years. I didn't just live and breathe and work for two years. This is what I've done. And, and that's going to carry a lot of weight because the firm is looking to fill needs. They, yeah, the need says two-year attorney, two to four-year attorney. What they really have is somebody that can file briefs, somebody that can, can review documents, somebody that can go to second chair of trial, somebody that can do depositions. If you've got that on your list, because you can't put that in your resume, it's an extra thing. Yeah. So, it's a, so these two things alone, will help advance your career on a much more accelerated pace in the direction you want it to go, much more than any of the other stuff, the on-campus interviews, the standard pad, monster.com, all you know, career builder, all those things are great. They're tools. They're tools that everybody else is using. How do you get out of that noise, right? How do you get out of that? Diversify. Yeah. Give yourself some, you know, identification. Yeah, no, I, 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 that, that, that's, that's awesome. No, I'm all about that. That's just the same thing. I would say almost really for almost any industry would be very, very similar. Um, I mean, if you want it, you, you got to go get it, point, point being. Um, coaching. I, I wanted to touch on coaching here. Mm -hmm. Coaching, so like in a sense of coaching in your, in your background, but also in a sense of, you know, what, what do you think coaching provides to some of these different people with regards in their businesses or in their lives that they've learned from in a sense like for instance i mean i've i've been coaching soccer i know you've been coaching for i mean over 10 years or <laughs> yeah so. yeah like i've been coaching soccer for the kids i mean 
and I've gotten paid what I'm worth too. I've gotten paid (laughs) all my worth as a coach at the through the YMCA through the Dallas Little League. I I would say like let's let's do that. I'll give like one for instance one attribute that really sticks out to me. For instance, like I personally learned from. I'm sure you're gonna have some more. We'll go on for there. But for the coaching, the one thing I really really jumped out at me that I was not expecting (laughs) that I learned from was with regards of I wasn't there just to coach the kids and all the kids and their soccer, the, the little league and all that. But I, what I was doing is I was coaching the parents in so many regards, like coaching the parents mm-hmm. on how to coach their kids, mm-hmm. but also how to be civil adults, almost, which is <laughs> right. upsetting to say. Like even at the YMCA, you know, which yeah. I think they have a pretty good organization. So yeah, yeah, definitely different than select. We've, yeah. we've experienced yeah. it both ways. And the competitive yeah. scene. I mean, I played competitive too. It was just, it's very, very different. But I mean, when you got kids, for instance, like we had this one gal had a uh, had a son, and I mean, these are babies; they're four year olds, five year olds, like they're really little, really tiny. And of course, like some of them are just now starting to use this as a springboard to get away from mama, like get away from mama, get away from dad, you yeah. know, like all that. All right, all right, Johnny, go back out there. Come on, come on, Susie. Mm-hmm. But uh, with this little boy, he just would always his fear of being seen by everybody else. Loved playing soccer, played a lot of time in practices. He was phenomenal. Listened. He was great. But the moment it came to game day, he would get on the field and run out there with his friends. But the moment he looked up to the sideline and looked at the bleachers, mm-hmm. and he's looking at the parents' faces, and everybody's cheering, everybody's smiling, just look at these cute little kids. And he just like gets super duper red face and just runs, just mm-hmm. throwing his face down. With Realizes where he's at all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like sprinting over. And of course, he would go to his mother. But it happened time and time again. And it was getting to where I would even go over there and hold his hand, take him out of the field. Like, come on, buddy. Come on. Let's go, man. We got this. I was like, you got this. Like, show everybody how fast you are. And uh, I was like, you're the flash, right? I was like, you're gone. So they don't even see you. He's like, look at the ball. Go get that. And of course, he'll go like sprint towards it. He get the, he'll end up getting the ball and end up driving it for so long. And he ends up losing it. Of course, like, oh, super defeat. But the point was, when he'd run to his mother, I always have to point out to her at the end. It, I do feel like I was successfully able to drive it through for her to understand. But her point, unfortunately, what she ended up deciding to do was to not have him play soccer anymore. She's like, well, maybe it's just not his sport. It's like, hey, he's so early on. It's like you're developing you know, his teamwork, cooperation yeah. skills, camaraderie. And I was like, you can't keep catering to him. I was like, when he comes and wants you on the side, you got to bring him back out on the field. I was like, the parents aren't supposed to be on the field. But there was a little period from the beginning where they kind of allowed a little bit for you to encourage them, push them onward. Mm-hmm. But I'll try to push to her. So you cannot just keep, you know, embracing him and holding him like a big baby. You're fostering these, these, these Dependence yeah, and dependencies yeah. and whatnot. And I think that there's things like that, that well beyond exceed coaching for the sport aspect, for the aspect of it being fun and learning how to play with others well and such. Cause that goes on in school that goes on to anything else in their life and business and such too. It's like, are you going to run to mommy and daddy? Like when you, 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 you <laughs> right. have, it's upsetting or you don't know what to do. Like every single time, like the need to create some independence. And mm-hmm. that, that was my main takeaway. What, what, what about you? Well, I, I, totally. Yeah. You know, you, you get into it coaching or whatever with, with the idea, okay, I need to learn the sport. I need to learn how to teach the sport and the, whatever it is. And I've coached flag football. I've coached, um, tackle football, I've coached baseball at the lower levels, I've helped out with select levels, basketball, girls basketball, girls Jeez. softball. I've got four kids, so I've done it all, right? And it was like it was like a 10-year process. And, and um, but I mean in some sports I knew better than other. Obviously, baseball I played baseball and football growing up and, and uh, but at the lower levels of soccer, I forgot soccer yet. 
that many different times. Don't know anything about soccer. <laughs> the lower levels of soccer is basically kick the ball. Don't use your hands. Go that way, right? There's a goal over there. That's where you want to go. It's literally the goal. So, um, you know, basic stuff. And you think that it's going to be all about that. And, and, and it is. I mean, that's where you spend energy. You work up drills and you work up skill sets and everything. And, of course, you can't. You know, spend time one on one with the kids to teach them how to throw and catch. That's where you got to teach show the parents, hey, I need you to work on these kids to do this and this. We can only work on team stuff in our one hour or whatever, an hour and a half or two hours a week we get. We need to work on team stuff. So you need to, you know, individual development has to take place outside of that. What you realize though, and, and now that I've been doing it for 10 years and I'm kind of been forced retired now that my youngest has finished his last year of, of rec ball, right? He's going to be at the junior high next year. And so I'm, I'm forced to, to hang up my whistle. But, uh, you know, looking back, I realized I learned as much as I taught, right? And it wasn't about the sport. I, I didn't learn very much at all about the sport other than what doesn't work with kids. Um, but I learned a lot about people. And I think I taught more the lessons about, about individual stuff, you know, about, about development, about character, about perseverance. You know, your, your kids are going to cry. You know, there's, there's crying in baseball when you're four, when you're nine. There's crying here when you strike out. But guess what? It should hurt. Mm -hmm. It should hurt. It should make you want to get better. The, the, use it. Use it to, to go, uh, you know what, I'm going to work. I'm going to get better. We had this one kid that played uh, flag football with us just one season. He kind of, we, we tried to have a, a local team where the kids were, we could work so we could practice closer to home. And he was assigned to the team. I liked the kid. It was a good kid, but he, he was up north and needed for him to be on our team after the next year. And so he's on another team, but he kept playing flag football. And I've seen him and he was horrible. I mean, the first year, <laughs> I mean, he was a big kid and he was fast. But he couldn't he, I mean, he couldn't catch a cold in winter. I mean, this kid could not catch football. But he could get there and everybody I, I think the whole time we maybe threw we tried to throw the ball to him three or four times a game, every single one. Hit his hands went down, hit his hands went down. Practice, hit his hands went down. I worked with him one on one, hit his hands went down. But we played him uh this this year. Uh he was on the, another team that had uh, he's been playing, you know, kept at it, been four or five years he's been practicing, playing. Um, he's one of the best players on that team. Catches everything now. Um, and you know, seeing his development, I love yelling out. His name's Steve. I don't know. I'm gonna say his last name. Hey, Steve! I recognize hey, you. Remember me? Oh yeah, I remember you, coach. From four years ago, he remembers me coaching him, and that was always nice to him. I have to work with him, but I mean, it was just you know, he he decided he was going to get better, and he wasn't just going to be the kid who couldn't catch. And we had a couple of kids on our own team that were like that. You know, fast kid. One of our one of our running backs on our team. You know, he was great at running back, but you couldn't throw the ball to him because he couldn't catch. But he and his he's got an older brother. And his older brother started working on catching. He can catch the ball now. He, he became, you know, to be able to use it. One of the great things I love about watching these kids is watching them fail, watch them not quit, encourage them yep. not to quit, to stay on it, to stay with it, and maybe teaching them to help each other out, and then watching them succeed. I mean, I feel like I'm their dad. You know, I feel like I've got, I, you know, I didn't. All the only thing I had to do with them is I gave them the opportunity and I gave them the encouragement, and that's really. A coach's job, whether it's a flag football coach or a mentor coach, a life coach, development coach, or anything, it's it's give the kid the tools, give them the encouragement. Ultimately, it's on them to stay with it and do it. Um, and that's something that I took my own life. I mean, I had coaches uh, through pretty much through high school, right, in sports and stuff. And some of the lessons that I've learned, I mean, I, I look back, and this is where we we may have talked about this before in. Um, I don't know if it's on the, on this podcast or on uh, just personally about how I think sports uh, for for children for youth are, are so critical to their development their education. Um, they shouldn't if, if they and it really worries me with what's going on now. Everybody has to be like a D one prospect if they're going to play football for their high school or and it's just it's sad because not only is it changing kind of 
to me, part of the high school experience, to, especially in Texas, mm -hmm. to not be able to play on your high school football team uh, unless you're a top prospect because the school is so big and, and there's just not the opportunities. But to, to the, the lessons I've learned as, a, as an athlete growing up and the things I didn't know that I would learn. I thought I'd learn how to hit a fastball, how to, how to hit a curveball, or how to, how to run a, or catch a pass in football or, or how to block better. And I did learn those things, although some of my coaches might disagree how well I learned those things. But I learned how to be a man. I learned how to overcome obstacles. I learned how to fail, get up, try again, fail, get up, try again, and finally succeed and how much, how much you own that success so much more when it, was, when it came with blood, when it came with fight, when it came with sweat, how much more valuable it was, how much it really resonates with you. And these are lessons that, especially young men, but women as well, young girls, and my daughter is a good athlete and she's learning these things too. In a, in a team sport, individual sports, you learn different lessons. And in football, I think it's gotta be, of all the sports, the, the most, because it's the most like war <laughs> that there is out there. Because it just, honestly, I mean, I don't care much you love football. It sucks, practice sucks, it does, it's hot, you're wearing gear, you're hitting, you're bleeding, you're sweating. I mean, unless you're a masochist, it sucks, right? But you do it because you do it for your brothers, you do it for the guys around you that, that, that you don't care what race they are, you don't care what religion they are, they're wearing your jersey, they're your brother, you fight for those guys. And you come together for each other. You don't want to let them down. You don't want to let the other 10 on the field down. You don't want to let your team down. Um, and so that's where you fight. And that's that, that similarity. It's the safest type of war there is, right? Other than paintball, maybe. But I mean, it's the, and there are, there are wonderful lessons from the horrors of war. There are wonderful lessons about, about that's duty and sacrifice. And that's why veterans are so prized in business and as leaders is because they know what that is. They know what that price is. They know what, what overcoming obstacles is and they know what focus and what teams can accomplish when they do focus together and you get those guys together. And so the best way to recreate that in a safe way for our kids is sports and football being to me the highest because it's the most challenging, the most demanding, not physically, but just demanding constantly of your character. But every sport, especially at the highest level can be that. So we're taking that away from our kids because I look back at the lessons I've learned and I remember math. I remember the Pythagorean theorem. I don't <laughs> use the Pythagorean theorem every year, but I learned how to deal with difficult people. I learned how to overcome obstacles. I learned how to, 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 to fight when I was tired. You know, that my co and some of the, the, the sayings my coaches would say, you know, you know, 10 minutes early is on time. On time is late. Remember who you are, where you're from, how you're supposed to act. Um, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all. All these little things, these still resonate. Man, they're from eighth grade. Yeah. Football. And, and it's these things that I, I still believe in. And these things I use daily, these lessons I learned daily that came from sports. And I, my worry is that our focus on excellence and exceptionalism in sport, that's not what sport's about at the high school level or the junior high level. It's not supposed to be that. And that's why I think it's so valuable. Thank God for the YMCA and for those rec leagues that are out there. Because my son was a decent baseball player. He was a good baseball player. He played one year select. It wasn't even like uber insane Nazi select. It was just select, <laughs> but it, it wore him out on sports. It just, he was done with baseball after that. It was just not, he liked baseball. He kind of even was in base love with baseball, but he didn't, he wasn't obsessed with baseball. And that's what these guys demand. Even at the fourth, fifth grade level, the select leagues to get really good, you've got to be at that level. And honestly, if you're not, you're kind of disappointing the team. 
and you feel like that. You feel like you're letting them down. Yep. And the question is, well, but I don't have any connection to this team. It's just a bunch of other guys, like an all-star team that got put together. I'm not brothers with these, I'm not, you know. And so he just kind of lost his love for baseball, which broke my heart because I love watching him play baseball. I love. I knew what I learned from playing baseball uh, because baseball is one of those unique sports that is a team. It's an individual sport masquerading as a team sport. It is not a team sport. There are team elements to baseball, but it is not. Football is the ultimate team sport. You know, hockey, ultimate team sport. Basketball, kind of a team sport. But I mean, baseball is an individual sport. It's pitcher catcher. It's pitcher batter. It's individual player. You've got to understand how to work within the team. And there are some elements of sacrifice and stuff. But you can be a really good individual player on a baseball team. And, you know, you'll still get drafted. You'll skip whatever. Yep. Uh, football team, it's hard to get seen. as a, You can be an exceptional football player. But if you don't have anybody blocking for you, it's hard to run. It's hard. If you don't have anybody to throw the ball to, it's hard to throw it. You can be a great quarterback. you got to get somebody to throw it to you. So uh, that's one of those things about being bad. So I love that, that opportunity to watch him. But, but select burned him out. And so we have a strict rule in my family, no select. And, that, and I'm not too worried about it. My kids are not superb athletes. My daughter probably could play select volleyball if she wanted to. But we just don't want to do it because I think it's more important that she play all other sports. And select is so demanding that you really have to focus on that sport, unless you're just one of those amazingly gifted athletes. Um, and I think, to me, we use sport as a teaching tool, not as a, as a means to a D1 scholarship. I think, you know, look at the statistics. Our money is better spent on SAT prep than it is, and on, on tutorials, than it is, you know. the high school level because I think that is that is a huge part of their education that more and more kids and my kids are going to a high school where I know my son he's a high school now he has no interest in any sports there because he's not a D1 called caliber athlete and so he just wants to not do sports yeah and and, and unfortunately he's going to miss out on he's going to have to learn lessons in life later on that may be more painful and more punitive to learn some of these lessons than when it's in a contrived atmosphere of a game yeah, when you think about that for a second too, man, that really hits home. Yes, yeah. I sure as hell would not want to experience some of that stuff later on after high school. Ooh. Right, Ooh, that'd, been, that'd been rough. And some of the character lessons <laughs> you have to learn yeah. by getting called out for oh, yeah. for being selfish or whatever. Yeah. I mean, if you do that in a marriage uh -huh. or do that in a family yeah. or at a job, yeah. that could be a much more <laughs> life-altering thing than if you do it on your softball team. <laughs> you know, that's a lot different. Totally agree. That's yeah, 100%. I mean, I think too, I mean, there's so many, it's still athletics in a, in a way, they're different athletics, but I mean, like we've nerded out before with uh, esports and such too, not just that, but also uh, I mean, a couple of things that I, I'm into for personally as well, they, they have the team aspect, so they're going to learn a lot of the same concepts. They're not going to learn perseverance though through getting their getting their tail whooped or getting, I don't know, you can, get, you get can learn games. Something. I mean, I get my tail whooped <laughs> when I play games. I mean, if I play yeah. playing, I get better, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the physical aspect, though, when you're well, winded, when you're winded, right. when you're winded, you're fatigued, you're tired, you're yeah. mentally drained, you're not there, you feel betrayed by your teammates or something like that, like in a sport that you might experience at one point in time. It's like, how do you, how do you pull through that? But robotics, so I mentioned through robotics at the high school, but also with the Cyber Patriot program, robotics kind of more common sense thing. People, a lot of people understand that in a way. Um, but it's those teams at all the high school level throughout the nation. Um, they have typically three different teams. They'll usually have a drivetrain team, which is going to be the guys creating the machine, the actual 
mechanics behind the wheels, the wheelbase, the axles, everything going through the actuators, uh, just making it complete an, an objective, a physical objective through mechanical engineering. And then also you're gonna have the software engineering team that's gonna be focused on AI. So a lot of these competitions, the robot has to go for, I think it's a minimum of about 10 seconds, 15 seconds or so autonomously. And it's gotta be able to do some part of that task, if not all of the task at least wow. once. It's gonna be able to do it by itself one time. This is time. the high school level, right? This is wow, high school level. That's impressive. Oh, absolutely. And so they have that. And then the third team will typically be regarding the management running it but being the mc and the controllers they're gonna be the guys with the guys and gals with the controllers in their hands they're also the ones that are on the field kind of guiding them like you know so many degrees to the right etc or you know the objectives on the south side of the field or whatever but it's it's really really neat to see how they go through that because they alternate leadership positions almost like you would in high school in some aspects but they alternate it ever so often so they'll give you so much task even especially the ones that are would be perceived as antisocial or whatnot, but they have to get out of that completely or they don't cooperate. They don't work as a team. And so you're probably aware too. Heath also is Rockwell High, both of them. They have national level competitor teams mm -hmm. every single year, both of them. And I mean, we got Vex Robotics that's just down the, down the highway over in Greenville. Yeah. And I mean, those are the same people that help put on, you know, BattleBots, Robot Wars, all the stuff you see on National Geographic and um, Discovery Channel and such. But it back to the walls. I mean, that stuff's so fun. But they, it's so neat to watch. And like that's one thing I really love about the mentoring of it. It's fun to make machines and make objects in the future and things that could do different tasks. Like the last competition they had last year, it was essentially simulating an Amazon work warehouse of the robots and being able to move to you know X X Y Z position on the field, the play field, and gym, and go and retrieve this object like these balls. And they're going to put them into a desired box based off like the color of that box or what it was or however many points or which one was lit at the time, maybe to indicate, you know, assembly line somewhere or products to go outbound to South America or, you know, some mm -hmm. other part around the world. Mm -hmm. Just really, really fascinating. But to watch these kids, these guys and girls be able to orchestrate the rest of them and they're going to run the team. So the guy that the guy or guy will be in charge at any one part time will be given directions to these three different teams. And so you can just imagine, like, it just gets super complex really, really fast. <laughs> now, you know, trend, traversing over to the Cyber Patriot stuff, I mean, that's super duper geeky, fun, nerdy stuff. Love it. Thank you to the Air Force for putting that on. They put that on throughout the nation for a lot of different schools. Um, but that, the essential of this, what's the background of that is Cyber Patriot, they emulate, they emulate having a defense. Like, so they have to, they're running a business or an entity and it's getting bombarded, it's getting attacked. It's getting attacked or it's already compromised and they're working like say a legal firm or a medical firm or something and they get breached. It's like, how do they react? What do they do? Well, it's not just one person can't just take all that on. It's, it has to be a team aspect. It's like, who's gonna be the guys to run the security on it? Who's gonna be the dudes doing the forensics? Like it's a you know very complex task and it's to judge and see how fast they get to solving the problem set if they solve it and how efficiently they do like what are the fundamentals did they skip steps i mean like there's always a shortcut like that's what I love about computers there's always a backdoor to everything and i mean it translates into life but also in business and some of these folks especially this one gal that was in robotics you know if you met her off the street i mean she's very 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 bright very intelligent you would have never suspected that she ran a group of 
50, 60 people, 50, 60 students, and she was well admired and respected amongst all of them. Well, serving there on the Rotary Board for the scholarship committee, this gal was offered a scholarship. She was one of, we went out of, I think, 100 students, narrowed it down to 60 to 40, and then from 40 to 20, and then we had six come in for an interview. So difficult, yet so rewarding. Mm -hmm. And one of those I was so excited to see, I think she ended up being like the second or third pick. She had a full ride to University of Toronto for biomechatronics. Like, that's that's ridiculous. And then I just like interrupted her right there. Like, Man, it's like that gal right there. I was like, she's going to end up being, I was like, you're going to end up being the female Elon Musk equivalent. Damn well near. It's like, if there's one thing I could selfishly ask of you, please come back to this area. You know, like, <laughs> please right. go back to Rockwell Heath area. I was like, I will introduce you. I was like, I'll plug you into people. I was like, we'll make it happen. I was like, how cool would it be if you're able to? lead that into the rest of the students and they see that they can have that success in a different way. But I mean, I, I think coaching, like we said, it, it, it's critical. It's absolutely very, very important. But you want, we want to, uh, you'd mentioned wanting to talk about some, some business points yeah, really, and yeah, you know, that you have some questions or you've been presented with some questions about legal entities, different types of legal entities, for yeah. a, like a startup company. Yeah. That's a couple of different folks. I asked you know, What's the best entities of, with regards of an LLC and incorporated an S corp, C corp, etc. Like, what is you know the best for them? And I mean, you know, just my own perspective. I mean, I'm assuming, of course, the S corp is typically to be most beneficial for like single person, like a uh, social media radio host, consultant, different things. Um, and then, of course, incorporated where you have different positions or partnerships and things like what what's your what's your take on that? I mean, obviously, there's things like tax to be considered. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and so I'm going to give you the great lawyer answer here, which is it depends. I mean, it really does. I mean, there I'll, I'll give you kind of an outline of the different options that are common um, and, and sort of the pros and cons of each with regard to um, startups you know, as far as solos versus maybe a couple of smart, a couple of uh, startup founders, co-founders. Um, and some of the pros and cons of each of those, and you know, I, I but but really it depends on what the specific needs are of that particular enterprise, right? Yeah, you know, and where it's located and so forth. First thing to keep in mind is, um, you know, unlike other countries like you know the UK or or uh, Germany or or whatever, you know, Nova Scotia, there Nova <laughs> yeah. Scotia is not a play. That's, that's a state. That's a state count. <laughs> Uh, but or Canada, all right, you would have a, a, a Mexican corporation, right, or an SR or SA or SRL. Um, we don't have American corporations or amount. We have state driven. So every state law has its own. Every state has its own type of entity. So one consideration is where do you want to form it? Um, typically, if you're based in, let's say, Texas, that's where we're based. Um, you want to form it in Texas. It's not guaranteed. There may be reasons why you want to form it in Delaware. It's very popular, particularly for people that, that are going to seek venture capital or uh, something like that. Maybe there's a reason that, that they want to be formed in California or they have people operating in other states. When there's some states that are known for not so much tax havens as they are for uh, privacy. And so they, you know, Wyoming or Montana or Nevada. Uh, but but really, you know, I also, you know, if, you, if you're located in, say, in Texas, but you form the entity in Delaware, you're going to have to also probably register in Texas as a non-resident entity. So now you got two reportings, two two sets of laws to deal with. So I generally follow the KISS rule: keep it simple, stupid, right? Oh, so yeah. keep it simple, and and so generally, let's say, let's just keep it simple and say, all right, you're you're based in Texas. Let's start with a Texas entity. Okay, so we got we figured out the state laws. Well, in Texas, you have a bunch of different options. There are there are limited liability entities, and then there are the the basic entities, which don't really require a lot. You you could start. 
right now, the Jeffrey Lyons Company, and just kind of file an assumed name or Jeffrey Lyons Company, and it's a sole proprietorship, right? Um, you know, maybe do consulting, uh, web development, whatever. And you, that is not a legal entity separate from you as a person. It has a different name if you file, you know, an assumed name with the county, but and you can open an account, you can represent that publicly and take checks made out to Jeffrey Lyons Consulting. But the, the 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 truth is, it's not separate from you. If it gets sued, you got sued. So your personal assets are at stake. So it's generally not a great idea for a long-term business. You know, if you do a little side hustle, you know, you make a couple hundred bucks a month and it's, you know, relatively low risk stuff consulting, that's probably fine, coaching or something like that. Um, but if you're, you know, you're really starting to ramp up the business, the, the bigger, you know, the more, the bigger the challenges, the more work you do, the more liability you're going to have, the longer term you have, the more you need to start thinking about protecting your personal assets. And so you need to start thinking about forming an entity like an LLC or corporation. Uh, but there's another type of, of general, you know, entity that doesn't have to be filed or registered. Uh, and that's a partnership, a general partnership, um, which I like to refer to as the worst possible solution. <laughs> because they are just like you have unlimited liability personally for Jeffrey Lyons Consulting, Jeff and Jim Consulting, which you and I would form as a general partnership under state law, that partnership has not only liability to you personally for what you do and what the business does, you are now also liable for what I do jointly and severally. Let's say you're a millionaire and I'm broke and the, the partnership gets into a lawsuit and we get a judgment against us for $500,000. Well, it, even though we're 50-50 partners, let's say, in the company, that doesn't mean you owe $250,000. The, the plaintiff can come collect the entire half million dollars from you, personal assets, even though there's no money in the company. So a general partnership has unlimited liability for joint and several liability, which means each partner is liable for all the, all the, the debts of the company. So and that happens very naturally. If you and I decide to do something together, we want to we want to work on a project together. We want to consult together. We want to, um, a joint venture is a general partnership. Um, so those are un, those don't have limited liability. They don't, they don't protect the assets, the personal assets of the owners. Um, the limited liability entities are great. LLCs, corporations, limited partnerships, LLPs. What they, what's what makes them limited is if I put fifty thousand dollars into this company to capitalize it, you know, we form an LLC and we, we each put twenty five thousand dollars in. Well, the most money I could ever lose is the twenty five thousand dollars I put in. OK, because except for very, very limited circumstances, they can't pierce the veil. Piercing the corporate veil means going beyond the company to my personal assets. So if I put money into the company, that's the money I'm risking. So if the company ends up with a million dollar lawsuit, but it's only it only has my twenty five thousand dollars and your twenty five thousand dollars, the most somebody could collect is the fifty thousand, and which means I'm only out twenty five thousand dollars. Nobody could come sue me. Well, they can sue me personally, but I'm not going to be liable for it. I'll be able to get out of that lawsuit unless what well, was fraud, unless I'm not acting like a real company. I'm using it as an alter ego. There there are some limited circumstances. It's very hard to pierce that veil from a practical standpoint, but it is something that there are some couple of basic things you can do from an entity standpoint to not have that happen. So. Limited liability entities are great. And in Texas, for example, they're really easy to form. I'm, um, you know, there, there's if you if you have enough knowledge to do it yourself, it's 300 bucks with the state of Texas to file the document, to file your certificate formation for a corporation or for an LLC. If you use a law firm or something else, I mean, we, we charge about 1500 bucks. All, including the $300 fee. So, but we do a lot more. We, we obviously consult with you about what's the right entity type. You know, there are pros and cons of different options. Um, you know, if you want to go corporation, if you want to be an LLC or an LLP, um, how to structure it correctly based on what your needs are. Uh, you know, being a manager managed LLC versus a member managed LLC. You know, how many shares of stock should you offer for the corporation? Do you want to be an S Corp? What are the pros and cons of that? 
we don't give tax advice. We generally defer that to your CPA, your bookkeeper, to, to decide whether you want to be an S corp or whether you want to be uh, taxed like a C corp or LLC uh, pass through. But but we can tell you what type of entity how it gets taxed. What we can't tell you is whether that's a good for you, whether it's a good idea for you to be an S corp. That's where you want to have that conversation with your CPA based on your operations, your ownership, what you want to do short and long term. Because uh, you can always change. You can you can go from being an LLC to a corporation. You can go from being a Texas LLC to a Delaware corporation. It's a process, but it can happen. So it's not it's not you're not always committed to it. So that's why often for a startup, you know, especially in the, on the service side or the IT side, we'll say, all right, you know, maybe the simplest thing to do is be an LLC because it gives you more flexibility. Um, and then if you do decide to take investment later, well, let's maybe let's look at converting to Delaware C Corp or something like that. So. All right, so uh, LLC, and let's talk about corporations first, because people refer to corporations usually as two types. There's a C-Corp and there's an S-Corp. Texas does not provide, Texas law does not provide for a C-Corp or no S-Corp. S-Corp and C-Corp refer to IRS subchapters, okay, referring to tax status. The, Texas just has corporation. You're, by default, every corporation has a tax status of its own. So it's like a legal person. It's an entity. And so it pays its own corporate taxes. Um, that's a C-Corp. By default, every corporation is a C-Corp. So if you form a corporation in Texas, just a standard profit, you know, for-profit corporation, um, you are default a C-Corp, right? You file, you get your tax ID number from the IRS, and you're a C-Corp. You can elect to be treated as an S-Corp, um, but you have to fit the standard. And you basically, the, the main standard, you can only have a limited number of owners. All the owners have to be individuals. It can't be owned by entities or, or you know, there's some exceptions for like trusts, but you can't be an sure. LLC that owns the, the C-Corp, sure. or excuse me, the S-Corp. Um, you can't have uh, non-resident owners. Um, and the main thing for this is an S-Corp is a pass-through tax. So the S-Corp itself doesn't pay taxes, you know, the way a C-Corp does. C-Corp will pay taxes and then, uh, you know, it'll pay its own taxes. S-Corp, the taxes are passed on through to the owners. So if you own, uh, 50% of, of an S corp, and I own 50% of an S corp, and we make $100,000, or, or the excuse me, the S corp makes $100,000. Well, you will pay tax on $50,000. I will pay tax on it, even if we don't take the money out. Even if the money stays in the company, it's it's presumed that we do. Okay, that's the pass through tax. Now, why do people do that? Well, if you're a C corp and the C corp makes $100,000, well, the C corp pays taxes on that that $100,000. So let's say it's 25%, so it's $25,000 in taxes. So there's $75,000 left. And then you and I decide to distribute that to each other, which is, you know, 37, five or whatever, you know, each. Well, I have to pay up my personal income tax rate, tax on 37, five. That's money that's already been taxed. And you're paying at your income rate at money that's already been taxed. So it's called double taxation. So you're paying tax, the company's paying tax, and then we're paying it again. So you end up paying more taxes. So uh, in, in some cases, depends on how much money the money, you know, if I'm in the 36% tax rate, maybe not, right? Maybe it's better than the corporation paid the tax. So it really depends on, that's why we say these are the implications of it, but whether it's a good idea for you or not, depends on your personal tax status. And if you're going to want to, if you want to hoard that money in the company, because you're like, look, we're going to make a hundred grand this year, but I don't want to be taxed on that because we're going to leave it in the company and use it for next year. So next year we'll make $200,000. We'll leave that in the company so we can buy a building. Well, I don't want to pay tax on that if I'm not actually getting that money. So maybe a C corp makes more sense. So that's kind of one of the, the pros and cons of the for well, that's a C corp, right? Or that's a C corp S corp. Um, you have to meet the qualifications to be an S corp. And if you bring in an owner that's non-individual, or if you bring in an owner that's a non that somehow doesn't qualify as an S corp, boom, 
you're back to a C corp, just like that. Everybody <laughs> is back to C corp. So you, you bust the, the S corp. So you have to really know who's going to be owning your company. Oh, and another thing is an S corp cannot have multiple classes of stock, just one class. You can't have preferred shares. You can't have non-voting shares. You have to have just shares, common capital stock. And so that's another limitation, especially if you're looking to, to raise capital and maybe have some preferred shareholders and, and maybe some non-voting shares, you know, profits, interest and stuff. Can't do that, the C Corp. Then we got an LLC. Oh, no, other thing. Let's finish on corporation. Corporations are run by, well, they're owned by shareholders and they have to have an annual, at least an annual shareholder meeting. And they have to document that they have an annual shareholder meeting, which can be real simple if there's only one shareholder. Yeah, Generally, you can have a consent in lieu of a shareholder meeting saying, hey, I agree to these things. I ratify everything the board did last year. I reelect these board of the board members of the board of directors. Only me, I'm the, I'm the sole director. You have to put that in your binder and have that for every year. Because if you're ever challenged that you aren't acting like a real corporation, you know, somebody's trying to pierce that veil and get to your corporate stock or your personal assets, well, then you've got to make sure that you've got those documents that show you really are acting like Microsoft. You really are acting like uh, Apple, right? You are having those annual meetings of shareholders, even if you're the only shareholder. Obviously, you're meeting with yourself constantly. Uh, or if there's two or three shareholders that are working in the company, you probably talk regularly and you kind of meet informally, but you have to officially meet a few times or at least once a year. And you have to document that you had your quote, unquote, annual meeting. Well, same thing is true. You're run by shareholders that elect board of directors. The main job of the shareholders is to elect the board of directors. Well, the board of directors have to also meet at least once a year and you have to document that. So you have the, the annual board of, meet, board of directors meeting and the number one job of the board of directors is to ratify what the officers have done and appoint and vote in new officers, president, CEO, and that sort of thing. So I'm talking about day-to-day -day stuff. You know, there, you know, generally if there's a merger acquisition, something like that, they'll want to, you know, have other things that the directors or the shareholders may vote on. But unless there's a fundamental change, typically year to year, that's all you got to do. You have to, the shareholders re-vote re in the board of directors, the directors re-vote in the, the officers and the officers run the day-to-day -day operations. And so really that's all that has to be done. There's some formalities there, um, but, but a corporation has a more rigid structure, right? Which is good in a way, you know, you have shares, you sell stock, but you have to tell when you file your corporate formation document, you have to say, okay, we're going to have, we have, we authorize a million shares. You don't have to issue all those shares because all that matters at any given time in voting is how many shares have been issued. So if you're authorized a million shares and you're the only shareholder originally and you, and you give yourself hundred thousand thousand shares, but those all, those are the only shares that have been issued. Well, you control hundred percent of the issued of the authorized issued and outstanding shares. So that means you vote, if you vote all your shares, that's hundred percent of the vote. It doesn't matter that there are other shares that are possible to be issued. So what a lot of people mistakenly do is, okay, we'll do, we'll authorize a thousand shares. All right. And I need to issue all a thousand shares to myself. Okay, good. That's fine. But now you have no more shares to issue. So if you want to bring in another shareholder, you either have to sell them your shares, which could result in a tax thing for you personally, because you own the shares, you have capital gain based on zero value versus whatever you sell them for. But you'd rather that money go into the corporation. Well, you can't issue more shares. You've already issued them all. So you can do a couple of things. Well, you can either sell them yourself, then you have a tax issue, or you can go back and modify your certificate, increase the number of shares to 5,000, and then you can issue 500 more shares. Well, now 1,000 are held by you, 500 are by your new business partner. You still control two thirds of the shares. Right. So that's that's called corporate democracy. What matters is how many shares are outstanding. If they're not outstanding, they don't count for voting purposes. But one of the negative, well, I don't say negatives. If I buy a share from you, I get to come to every shareholder meeting. I have a vote of one share, whatever that <laughs> share is worth. I get to vote and you got to put up with me 
until you buy that share back. Okay. And I'm the biggest pain in the ass shareholder. <laughs> the small percentage shareholders are the biggest pain in the ass, usually, not always, but usually. So that's something you get an automatic right to come to. You're a shareholder. That's the that's the ticket to the dance, right? You get to come to the dance. Now you get outvoted by everybody else, but you get to come and see what's going on. So you have automatic ownership, not only of the, the financial benefits, but also management. If you get to vote your one share or whatever on those. Now an LLC is kind of a hybrid between a partnership and a, and a corporation. It's less structured and, and uh, uh, rigid than a corporation. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have regulations and bylaws and things, and it doesn't require annual meetings like the corporation does, the corporate bylaws and the corporate laws have. But it's a little more structured than a partnership, which is completely driven by the agreement. The partnership agreement has to give all the structure, voting, non-voting, who does what, who can do the, you know, what happens if somebody dies, what happens if somebody wants to sell. All this stuff has to be provided in this document. Well, in an LLC document, you get a little bit more structure based on the, under Texas, Texas Business Organization Code, the TBOC, provides some structure. But, but your agreement is actually called a company agreement, more like a partnership agreement. So it's a hybrid between an LLC, or excuse me, between a partnership style and the more rigid corporate style. So it gives you the best of both worlds. You get that permanent limited liability. You don't have to have annual meetings, but you can be a little more flexible in how people get to vote and, and that sort of thing. When, one of the other benefits is the default status for an LLC is passed through tax. So it's it's not taxed like a corporation, it's taxed as a pass-through entity. So you get to be taxed on your personal asset, or excuse me, on the personal money. Uh, the entity doesn't pay its own taxes. So you get the benefit of an S-Corp without having to file and maintain the stats. So you can have non-resident owners, you can have non-individual owners, you can have multiple classes of ownership um, in an LLC, because and you still get the benefit of that kind of pass-through tax, like a sole proprietor or a partner gets, right? As opposed to a corporation that has to pay its own taxes. So those that's one of the benefits of an LLC. Now, there are certain situations when you when you complete your LLC filing, you get your tax ID number, you can be, you can elect to be taxed like a corporation. And then elect to be a subchapter S tax corporation, even though you're an LLC. So what you get is the LLC structure from the standpoint of the flexibility and the hybrid nature and the state law, but you get S corp status from the IRS. Now there are reasons why you might want to do that. Some used to say that S corps got audited less than sole proprietors or, or people that file their taxes on a, on a schedule C, uh, which is what a pass-through entity would be if you're the sole owner or K1 if you are if you have partners in your LLC, um, that they were less audited. Um, one other thing is corporations can have employees, which mean you as an owner can pay yourself a salary and kind of maybe run the payroll and stuff through that. So when it, whereas in a partnership, you can't pay yourself a salary because it's, it's not allowed. So those are some of the reasons why people might want to be an LLC, but then elect to be tax like a corporation and then elect to be a sub S. Um, but the simple default automatic status of an LLC if it's a single owner LLC, it's, it's treated for tax purposes only as a sole proprietorship. So you get the tax benefits of being a sole proprietor, but you get the limited liability of being an LLC. Or if you have multiple owners of the LLC, it's treated like a partnership. Again, you get the limited liability, you know, that general partnership is horrible, but you, now you've got a limited liability, but you get the tax benefits of a, of a partnership. So at the end of the year, everybody gets a K-1 as part of their partnership tax. So you get that benefit there. So those are, those are some, kind of some of the big picture things and why, you know, you know, companies or, or the different options that are available. There are others, LPs and, and limited partnerships, LLPs, but for the most part, startup companies, especially technology-based companies or service-based companies tend to either be corporations or LLCs.
particularly if there are be, there are going to be people that are the the early owners, the early founders are going to be working in the company. Um, it's just easier to do that. There's a lot more flexibility in how you structure those relationships. Uh, you can do that in the LLC. You can do it as a corporation. I'd say unless somebody is actively going to be seeking venture capital pretty soon um, or, or going into you know angel investors or whatever, if they're just going to get money from themselves, self-finance or from a bank or from friends and family. I, they typically lean toward LLC just because of the simple, simple, simplicity and the flexibility that it offers. Um, and so I, I probably set up nine LLCs for every one corporation and then you know, 10 of those for any other options, whether it's an LLP or anything else that I set up just because of the, for my, for my entrepreneurial clients. Um, and, you know, LLCs can be subsidiaries and own other subsidiaries and things. So there's, there's a lot of people, even if they're, if they're simply doing, okay, I want to buy a couple of rental houses. Well, sometimes you may want to have a master holding company and then you set up a new entity, an LLC subsidiary of that holding company for every single property you buy. That way, a couple of things. One, if there's a really big problem with one property, then it doesn't hurt the other properties because they're separate. They have one little capsules around them mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't foster up to the main holding company where all the money flows. But another benefit is, hey, this one in it, this one house, I want to sell it. Well, you may not want to have to actually sell the house. You could sell the LLC, you sell the stock in the LLC, or take investment. Hey, you know, I want to fix up this house rather than raising money by going and borrowing money from a bank. I'm going to let my brother-in-law put in $20,000 and get 5% of the company and 5% of that house, basically. But now I can use this money as equity. To, uh, to add on to the house. Yes, you see, this is good stuff. And this is some of the things I want to, for some of our listeners too, maybe they send us like an email um, and, and go forward from there, but also kind of have some questions, you know, maybe like they're thinking about doing something on the side. Maybe they're thinking about, you know, running some kind of DJ business or something, mm -hmm. or some entertainment, you know, whatever, you, you name it, making some baked goods and selling them yeah. from, yeah. To or like I did when I was in high school, washing yeah. cars and mowing lawns, you know. So at some it point you get some liability issues there. Now I was, I was what we call um, judgment proof. Mm -hmm. And basically that means broke. So when you're broke, <laughs> nobody's going to sue you because you got no money. Unless you got insurance, you don't got no money. So you're judgment proof. You know, so that's, that's something to keep in mind. Also, we can talk in another day about, about dealing with, uh, you know, other sides and contracts and stuff. You always, you know, no judgment from a court is worth the money it's uh, you spent to get it if you can't collect it. And so, uh, but for people that have nothing to lose, they don't have any assets. You know, they have to worry about a lot of this stuff because they don't have any money. But when you start having a house, retirement funds, family, kids, stuff, you, you know, you, you're no longer judgment proof. You have a lot to risk. You know, insurance is one way to hedge that. And we probably could bring in uh, at some point some uh, an insurance, you know, guest speaker that can talk to to startup entrepreneurs about some of the, the key types of policies and coverages they need to look into. Because, you know, you can do a lot with litigation or with, with, with contracts and with with entities and stuff. But I, I like to say an LLC is the is the most inexpensive insurance policy you can buy. You pay for it once, $1,000, $1,500, whatever. And if you, as long as you keep the annual filings up, which don't necessarily cost anything, it lasts forever. So it's like an insurance policy protecting your personal assets from anything that business does. So those are all good. That's definitely something you can keep in mind when you're, uh, you know, when you're starting a business. And every business is different. And I, and I you know, we can talk about the, you know, the entrepreneurs in your inner circle, but every entrepreneur needs a bank relationship, a uh, CPA accounting relationship and a lawyer relationship. And What's you generally will start with one of those and maybe those two that will help you find the other two. But you know, if you, if you have any success at all, you get to the next level. That's where you get to, you know, marketing and it and insurance and HR. And, but, but that's, that's, you know, but if you're just working with a laptop, you're doing some consulting freelance writer, you need a lawyer, 
because the lawyer is going to help you figure out your contract. Who owns the copyright? Who owns, you know, get the contract with the other stuff as an independent contractor. Are you an employee? Are you going to hire an employee, subcontractor, getting website built, all that stuff. You need a lawyer for that to make sure you're protected. Um, a banker, you got to put your money somewhere. You know, you may want to borrow money, you may want a credit. You know, a good banking relationship is very important. And then um, obviously a CPA, they're going to tell you how much taxes to pay, how to keep track of your records, how much this. So those are the things that even if you're just a, you know, if you're making more than $600 a year, you need those three relationships. Whatever. So if your side hustle is getting you more than 600 bucks a year, you may have tax consequences. You've got to put your money somewhere and you may have some liability you need to start thinking about. So uh, that's kind of a good standard. If you make more than 600 bucks, then maybe you need to start having those conversations. <laughs> well, good point. Well, well, we'll wrap it up for the day, get ready for next couple of podcasts and whatnot. But yeah, if y'all got any questions or concerns, whatnot, reach out to us. We will have a website here starting to be worked on a little bit more, but also for an email to go to you. Ideally, it'll probably end up being info at distilledlegacy.com. Uh, but again, my name is Jeffrey Lyons and just Jim Chester. Yeah, have a good one. Have a good Thanksgiving. We're signing off. You'll have a good one.